Good morning, Good morning campers. campers. Today's activities include going a little crazy. Lunch today will be kiss. <laughs> you know, I practiced that and I was able to get the kisses on rhythm every time and not now. That's that's great. And to end the night, we will be watching you laughing in purple rain. So put on your sunscreen bug spray and camp uniform as we dive into purple rain. Purple rain, purple rain. Marishka Hargate, Sarah. Marishka Hargate, Sam. I am your camp counselor, Sam, an ex-pro wrestler in training and current pro bodybuilder in training. And I'm camp counselor, Sarah. Uh, I can't do anything that the people in this movie do. <laughs> so moving on, we're here to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. We are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. You can jump in a lake. Why don't you go jump in a lake? <laughs> you can ride on the back of someone's motorcycle. I'm naming things that you can definitely do from this film. Oh, yes. Yes, that's true. I can jump in a lake. I do have the power of gravity. <laughs> So here we are in our final week of Mystery Month. Ooh. It sounds spooky now. And, uh, We're like, there's ghosts haunting Mystery Month. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always been ghosts. The ghosts of movies we have not mm -hmm. seen yet. And this was a movie neither of us had seen, except for the poster, why it's Purple Rain, starring Prince. I I am Amazing. really surprised after having watched this that this was a blank spot for both of us. Yeah, like I knew of it, right? Mm -hmm. You you everybody knows the poster. It's it's Prince in all his princely goodness in that well lit, smoky, uh, kind of clean alleyway. alleyway. <laughs> He, yeah, he's he's on his big purple Prince motorcycle. He looks rad as fuck. We all know the poster. But do we know the film behind the poster? We no, we, we didn't. didn't. We do now, but we didn't. <laughs> we, do, we do now. We didn't before. But we do now. We definitely know now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was an experience mm -hmm. it was a mm -hmm. revolution uh perhaps even and the revolution <laughs> uh but before we get into the film what is your personal history with prince so i was shockingly ignorant of prince i knew a couple songs um i liked what i knew but i'd never really gone uh deeper into it um, I just knew that he was, like, a cool dude who was real horny all the time, which honestly fits the remit of our show, um, that he was, like, kind of androgynous in this, uh, trend-setting and fashion-setting way, um, that he was incredibly talented, and that he died 
people said he died too young. And that's pretty much all I knew. And then I watched this movie, and then I, we both fell down the rabbit hole of, I must see everything Prince has ever done. How about you? Yeah, so... So when I was very young, I would get Prince and Michael Jackson confused. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're, they're binary stars. Yeah, they, they have the a similar kind of, you know, I'm going to hit these high notes randomly throughout a song, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But Prince does it in a more aggressive rock way, whereas Michael Jackson does it in more of a pop way. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So after a while, like I finally figured out that Prince and Michael Jackson were in fact two different people. Uh, I think part of the reason I was confused as a young kid as well was that Michael Jackson was referred to as the king of pop and Prince is Prince oh. and was royalty. And yeah, like my brain was going like, I'm getting mixed messages, but I'm sure it makes sense to <laughs> he someone. He doesn't look old Only enough to be his father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I always knew that he he also had yes, he was this somewhat androgynous. I think the first time I properly saw Prince was on an episode of uh Muppets Tonight. Uh-huh. Where he's the special human guest star and you know, he, he he does a bunch of musical numbers, but that was at the time that he was no longer Prince. He was the artist formerly known as Prince. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, do you do you know that whole story? See, that's one of the things that like I knew cuz um basically like when you're a kid and you don't know culture, all you know is the jokes that people make about culture. And I had to be like, who's RuPaul? What yes. does it mean to have makeup on like RuPaul? That sort of thing. Um and that's what I remember about Prince is mm-hmm. like people joking about the name, the symbol, the artist, the artist formerly known as that sort of thing. From a brief skim of him, of his Wikipedia, it seems like it had to do with a contract dispute. Is that right? Yes. So it it was a contract dispute that basically, uh, in the early to mid nineties, uh, Prince wanted to make music his way because that's always been his thing. He he makes the music the way he wants to make it, and his recording label at the time I can't remember who was like. No, we have license to put out Prince's music, uh-huh. but we're also going to dictate to you what that should sound like, because yeah, we're a music label. So Prince did this reverse Uno, somewhat. Yeah, yeah, a somewhat publicity stunt of oh, you're only going to release music made by the artist who goes by the name Prince. Well, I no longer go by that name. I I am now this. Right? And he created the symbol that we know, which is like a fusion of the male symbol and the female symbol with extra flourishes on it. And he said, that's my name now. That this is, you know, it's unpronounceable by, by human tongues, right? It's more of like a concept than it is a word. And, you know, it, it was in essence, to get out from under the thumb of a studio that was trying to dictate how he made his music, which is why he was able to continue making music during that period, but would release it as, you know, that simple, Mm -hmm. right? The artist formerly known as Prince. I, part of me also believes that this may have been a very 
early person to try to adopt a uh, gender non-conforming stance. That's the thing. I right? wish with today's society we could have asked him these questions. I mean, you know, it's none of our business, really, but mm -hmm. it's such a different attitude that we have now compared to, like, the early 90s. We have a lot more words and terms for what it feels like he was trying to voice. Yeah, like in how in um, uh, Sandman, written by Neil Gaiman, they the characters will refer to desire as sister brother or he she or she he, mm -hmm. and Neil Gaiman more recently has said, uh, especially with the first season of the Netflix show having come out, he was like in in the show we changed it to they, because at the time, I. I just didn't have access to how would a gender neutral person address themselves because there there weren't large amounts of gender neutral people talking about themselves that way or in in the modern lexicon. So that's why in the TV show uh, desire is referred to as they, mm -hmm. right? And as sibling as opposed to brother sister and he she. Which I think is lovely. It's great that Neil Gaiman is also just an incredible person who goes, ah, the culture has changed. I'm going to change yeah. with it. Neil Gaiman right? has been doing, has been trying to be uh, welcome to all gender identities and changing with the times for like 40 years now. We are we are lucky to have him in that aspect. Mm -hmm. So I I see what Prince is doing and what Prince did with that as potentially this may have also been an exploration of self of am i a gender neutral person because there's a lot in prince's songs that is gender neutral mm -hmm. like um i i would die for you the song begins with i'm not a woman i'm not a man i am something that you'll never understand and while you can look at it from the outside of like, oh, he's he's writing, you know, esoterically, blah 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 blah. But you know, this this is a person who wore these effeminate, you know, sort of ruffles and leather coats and you know, big earrings and eyeliner. And so there's this very androgynous presence that we talked about. I mean, some some of his one of his album covers is him naked in a flower, but it's in a feminine pose. So perhaps there's something going on there. Again, like for us to speculate, unfortunately he is dead and yeah, we can't ask him these questions. Yeah, he said he had the song but, um if I was your girlfriend too, which I was like, I remember this song. I should look it up and see if it mm -hmm. if it's doing what I think it's doing, or if I'm like, is he doing it in the voice of a character? And no, it's just if I was your girlfriend. Simple as that. Prince, for whatever gender identity yeah. Prince had going on, he was not confused by it. It felt like. Yeah, he knew who he was. He explored it how he did it. And right now we're referring to him as him because that is as far as we understand him to be, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but yeah, there's there's other lines in songs like... Um, uh, God, what songs? I Want to Be Your Lover, mm -hmm. yeah, where he sings about I want to be your mother and your sister too. It's like, oh yeah, it's like... He, he just wants to be mm -hmm. 
Like, all of these things are part of the human experience. But, uh, yeah, and and then the the big thing, of course, you know, he, he died. And we're actually recording a, a short period after his uh, the anniversary of his death. I think only a few weeks or a week or two. Oh, jeez. But the 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 um the weird thing about that day was i i i was working a good life i had one of the trainers come into my office to be like we just saw in the news prince is dead and what was really weird for me was that a few hours earlier i had just heard the news that china had died china oh, the, yeah, the, yeah. the female pro wrestler so all my emotional oh. output was like, oh no, China's dead. And then pr- hearing Prince died, I had a much more subdued reaction, I think, only because I was like, well, I have al- I didn't cry, but I was like, I've already grieved the loss of one really cool person. Ah, a second one? Ugh. Yeah, 2016 was a weird time from the very jump, because I think Alan Rickman died at the start of that year, and for the rest of the time, <laughs> it's funny, it's so cute, before 2020, we were like, 2016's the worst year that's ever happened. But God. everybody was like, oh, 2016 strikes again. turns out time does not get easier the further into it we go mm-hmm. well yeah that's uh it's all it's it's interesting speculation but you know whether or not there's anything to be made of it who knows yeah but we we have his work to you, speak for him are, are you yeah yeah uh but are you ready to get into some background? Let's do it. I thought this was the background. Let's do it. This this is not the background. <clears throat> I'm going to I'm going to preface the background with a dramatic reading. <clears throat> I will be inhabiting the character of Miranda Priestley from The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You have no idea where I'm going with no, this. No, no. Right. <clears throat> this stuff? Oh, okay. Uh... I see you think it has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue. It's not just turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. You're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets. I think we need a jacket here. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. Then it filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you, no doubt, fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars of countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Bravo. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you. I'll accept my Oscar in uh, its actual weight and gold, please. <laughs> yeah, you have a smoking so... <laughs> iron on the side of the stage. 
We're going to talk about the history of ruffles. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to guess something here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, number one, we're not talking about the potato chip company. Um, number two, no, I know from, definitely not. from experience sewing, how you create a ruffle is you take a lot of fabric and you squish it into a small space, and that's what creates the ripples. So I'm guessing this is all about luxury. Luxury. Oh, beautiful. So the the purpose of this was, I mean, Prince wears a lot of ruffles in this film, and it's kind of part of his signature style. Mm -hmm. Like, if you think about Prince, wh where does your mind go to? Generally to his ruffles, period. Yep. He, he's either naked or he right. has uh, something very Baroque on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, historically, ruffles have been... Sorry, more modernly, historically, ruffles have been associated with women, especially in a docile and domestic kind of idea. They're feminine. Think... Yeah, think the, the Stepford Wives or... Or innocent little girls on tins of salt or something, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they they just have they have ruffled dresses on, right? Pigtails and oh, look at these scamps. Yeah. And it may seem outdated, but the uh, the trend of ruffles has recently come back in 2016 uh, with designers Gucci and Balenciaga popularizing them again. Which, of course, leads down to the trickle-down effect of fashion, mm -hmm. right? Hence the Devil Wears Prada quote. It's, uh, it's all those prairie dresses that are on sale right now. Yeah, yeah, prairie dress is in, right? Uh, the ruffle, however, was once worn by the powerful and world changers of both genders in order to connote power. Because, as you said, a ruffle is a lot of fabric squished into a small amount of pay, uh, uh, space. So, who can afford a lot of fabric? Rich folk. Your favorite. I, I do love a dumb rich folk. I'd like to marry a dumb rich folk, please. <laughs> so, the association of frills and femininity together is actually relatively recent, as are most things associated with a patriarchal view of the gender binary in the past. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they initially came to popularity in the 16th century of Spain. So apparently soldiers would actively slash off their sleeves in order to expose the textured fabric beneath it. Oh yeah, you can see that... Um design if you think of like pumpkin pants that um a shakespearean actor would be wearing and you think of those those um gaps that you can see that's a way of designing uh mm -hmm. so that you don't actually have to slice the fabric and leave the raw edges but it creates that sort of look of, of volume underneath yeah so this is this is part of it right this became such a trend amongst men specifically 
that garment makers at the time started adding strings to clothes so that they could be taken in and create artificial ruffled looks rather than damaging the clothing and also probably because you could charge more for them. <laughs> yeah, right? that's like that's like your classic uh, your classic poet's shirt. It has strings hanging off of it. Yeah, exactly, right? You pull the strings, what? Instant ruffle. Yeah. So this would eventually lead up to the Elizabethan ruff, a heavily starched, ruffled collar that would sometimes grow up to a foot in diameter and became so intricate, a special tool that was rather like a fireplace poker was designed to help create such tight and rigid curls between the fabric. Ooh, sexy. Yeah. No, nothing says sexy like an enormous one foot wide on both sides ruffled collar around your neck. That doesn't leave much room for movement or being able to see your body. Batman can't turn his neck and neither can I. <laughs> So, the the Elizabethan ruff, as most fashion things tend to, uh, that, that died down and was later replaced with lace sleeves and neckties known as jabots in the 18th century. Yeah, that's kind of like so a, a, it's a, like a, it's kind of like a cravat. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, a jabot is a heavily ruffled necktie made of... Uh, cambric or cambric which is a type of linen and it was used to hide the opening of a dress shirt because how dare we know how you put your shirt on disgusting Sluts. Puh. yuckety yuck <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so even as the styles changed wildly over the course of decades if not centuries uh, the the jabot and the um, the ruffled neck variation would seem to become uh, a staple, if anything. Mm -hmm. Right, men's clothing started veering towards suits, like the what we know as the modern suits. But throughout all these mutations and evolutions of that style, like a ruffled collar would continue to move through it. Again, as a sign of wealth and mm -hmm. power. Uh, and you'd see them on women's dresses too, right? Like, no matter how wide or long or short or intricate a woman's dress is, it's going to have a ruffle somewhere in it. So, yeah, you can find these in portraits of Marie Antoinette, of uh, revolutionary leaders of the Americas. Uh, you can see it in, uh, I mean, even the most commonplace people after a while because of this trickle-down fashion effect everybody's wearing some kind of ruffled collar yeah i remember um when i was getting my degree we watched a film about louis the 14th and he would deliberately dress himself in as much lace and ruffles as possible as a way to keep control of his um, courtiers because if they um, if they had to match his fashion then they wouldn't have a lot of money lying around to do it. Uh, other stuff <laughs> uh, 
Oh, also probably like, oh, if they can't move, they can't fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to us, uh, watching him get dressed and demand more ruffles and more lace, we're like, this man looks like like he's about to be christened. <laughs> but that was that was a masculine, sexy style at the time. It, it was. It's It's weird because the ruffle would eventually become this sort of apolitical, cross-class, cross-gender accessory, mm -hmm. right? No matter who you were, of what race, of what denomination, of whatever, for the most part, you, you might have a ruffle somewhere in your outfit. So it's, it's kind of wild. So in Victorian England, women's fashion exploded with bustles, tears, and ruffles, all working with layers of fabric piled on top of itself. But for men, it changed again when the vogue of the time became dandyism. Ooh, uh, are you going to yeah. say Bo Brummel? Uh, yes, I do have Bo Brummel uh, written down here. Lord Byron and Bo Brummel are kind of the, the, the atypical foppish dandies that we like to think about. Mm -hmm. Bo Brummel was um, so famous for his style, he would invite people to watch him get dressed in the morning. And it was like an hours long affair. Yeah, it's it's one of those like, oh my god, Bo Brummel is getting dressed. I hope I get invited. Not in a weird way of Bo Brummel sends out invitations to randos yes. only for them to show up and be like, you're getting dressed? Yes, you're very welcome. Yeah, I found a golden That's ticket in a chocolate bar like. and now I get to watch Bo Brummel, Bo Brummel get dressed. <laughs> Why? Nobody's been in and out of that dressing room in years. <laughs> He's also why we, you could also lay the blame at Bo Brummel's feet for how um, uh, conservative men's fashion can be now. Because he brought in the idea of like, black coat, white shirt, done. So that's, that's exactly where I was heading with this, in that the... It's this style of the dandy man, of someone, a man who's performatively effeminate, you know, handkerchiefs and ruffled everything and every, all, every piece of his clothing is pristine, right? Mm -hmm. It, it, it was such a loud way for men to exist that basically the entire men's fashion industry and the way of just being in society went oh no we're not putting up with that shit anyone everybody in black now <laughs> no more fancy we're all going to be super serious guys super serious so by the end of the 19th century and the Victorian era for the most part Men's collars and neckties had become simple and unadorned. No more ruffles. Ooh, hiss. And then, it, yeah, yeah. In the 20th centuries, ruffles were no longer acceptable men's attire, period. And had basically become a singularly female fashion trend. But with the world wars on the horizon, ruffles had to take a time out because they were too extravagant and wasteful during the lean war years. 
So it wasn't until the 1950s Christian Dior introduced his new look for women. And when I say new look, I don't mean like, oh, he made a new look. Like, he called this this style, this thing he created, the new look. Yeah, it's capital, it's capital N, N, capital N, capital L. L, yeah. I love it. If I could dress every day yeah. in new look, I would. I think it's very flattering. Yeah, and it, it brought back the idea of elaborate clothing. And along with this came the uh, mid-century peplum waist, which is that little ruffle that... Uh, it, it's it's done differently depending upon the style of the shirt or dress, mm-hmm. but uh, it can be as simple as a tiny stitched on ruffle at the waist of a dress, or it can be the bottom half of a uh, a flowing shirt for women. It's a great way to make your waist look very small. Mm-hmm, I know that. <laughs> I use it in drag yeah. where I'm like, I... I have the waist the size of both of my thighs. I'm just going to have to cheat. Make something else look bigger and your waist will look smaller. There's not much else on me to get bigger. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, Yeah. So with these changes in fashion, this is where people began cementing in their mind that, ah, ruffles equals women women in ruffles mm-hmm. right and it became tied to these wholesome personas and characters like the ones played by debbie reynolds or judy garland right mm-hmm. so ruffles had a very brief resurgence for menswear in the 80s with new wave bands like adamant or prince in this case so but in embracing it in a a gender bent kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are these are men who are putting themselves as purposely against what being a man is by embracing very unusual fashion choices. And these were musical acts that were also being far more than just musical acts, right? It was it was fashion, it was makeup, it was hair, it was an entire package, right? Mm-hmm. You're styling yourself bigger than just your music. So it's not to say that ruffles are frivolous and purely about decadence and femininity. Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wore a traditional jabot while sitting as Supreme Court Justice, Mm -hmm. a tradition not upheld by many of the other justices, right? Yeah, it was like an icon of her. Yeah, she wore as a symbol of power... Uh, that she wields and a symbol of her office Mm -hmm. as opposed to, Oh, you know, I just like wearing a ruffle. It makes me feel feminine and pretty up here in the Supreme court. (laughs) Yeah. When I have uh, one of the most powerful seats in the land, sometimes a girl just wants to feel pretty. Yeah. I like a pink nail and a big hammer. And then uh, one other place that ruffles have come up and, oddly enough, somewhat endured would be in X-Men comics. In costumes? (laughs) There is a group of X-Men villains called the Hellfire Club. And the Hellfire Club are uh, sex pests. (laughs) is a nice way of putting it. They're a group of evil capitalist sex pests 
whose whole shtick is they love hanging out in old-timey clothes. Uh And by old-timey clothes, I mean the men wear old-timey clothes, like with ruffled collars and, and... you know, handkerchiefs and coattails and stuff, and then the women are just in capes and lingerie because, sure, old-timey clothes. But the fact that the main villain of the Hellfire Club, Sebastian Shaw, played by Kevin Bacon in the film, uh, in his 40 years, maybe even 50 years of existence in comics, he's never really evolved away from a ruffled collar. (laughs) See, when you find something you like, you buy it in every color. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He loves punching people to death and a ruffled collar. Uh, But, uh, yeah, with with anything in fashion, who's to say whether or not it'll come back into vogue for men? At some point, I, th- I feel like we're, we are finally getting to a place where men are becoming adventurous in fashion once more. Yes, thank God. I know. Oh, great. Another pair of pants and a shirt. Cool, I guess. But now it's like, oh, you are accessorizing. You're doing nails. You're putting on a bit of makeup, too. Yes, look, your best king. Yes. To, to, to quote Miranda Priestley again... Florals for spring? Groundbreaking. (laughs) So that's my uh, little thing on the history of ruffles. Thank you for gathering together this information for us. Oh! Oh. (laughs) Let's talk about this dang movie. Now... I know that we're going to be talking about the movie, but the movie and the albums are sort of symbiotic. Like, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to say this is just about the movie and not the music in the movie. No, this... So, from from what I read about this, this movie was not just a hit movie, but it was, like, an across-the-board for Warner Brothers mm-hmm like knock out of the park hit because the movie did well when it was released on VHS it sold really well uh, when the album came out that went multi-platinum uh, Prince won an Oscar for best soundtrack right the music videos people tuned in more to MTV so it bumped the viewing numbers for that as well across the board whatever you was associated with Purple Rain People wanted it. Yeah, it's... uh, When I was looking it up, I was seeing, like, it's generally considered of the movies that are, like... uh, We were talking about this at the end of that last episode. Of the movies that are generally, like, we have a hot new musical artist, let's put them in a movie. This is generally considered, like, the best one. It's that or it's 8 Mile. It's really good. And I, I will say this. I added the whole album to my Spotify playlist. I love it. I've listened to it so much in the several weeks of <laughs> this now. Well, I'm like, oh, before, like, I had listened to, again, like you, there were, like, four or five Prince songs that I really yeah, enjoyed. Yeah. You know, Raspberry Beret, that. After this, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> this whole album fucking slaps. Oh. I love it. 
Um, so before we get into the synopsis of it itself, um, I just need to give a quick note about some of the people in this movie. Um, so we have as Prince's main rival, uh, the Morris Day and the Time, who are essentially playing themselves. And Apollonia, who was also a musician around, essentially playing herself, just as Prince is playing himself, though he's called the kid. He is performing with his band, The Revolution. Uh, because I, I did, once Morris Day shows up at the very start of the movie, I was like, who is this guy? He's an interesting choice as an actor, and it's because he's not an actor. Yeah, uh, watching it, I got really strong Maya Rudolph vibes for him. <laughs> so much so that I was like, I was like, no, there's no way they're related. And looking it up, as far as I could tell, they are not related. But there's something about his performance that I was really endeared towards. Like, I know you're the bad guy, but I don't hate you for anything you're doing here. Yes, he's willing to look very silly, which is not something that you would normally see if he's basically playing himself. Yeah, it's and it's not silly in like a Disney Channel kind of like, wah, wah, we got the parents. They, they made themselves look like fools. It was just like, oh no, this is how you perform. Yeah. Th that's kind of endearing. Uh, so we open to uh, Let's Go Crazy by Prince, which is a, I would say, a strong way to open any movie. A strong way. You know, the, starting with the... Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. life. Burr, burr, burr. Electric word, life, and that's... Uh, fuck, how does the rest of it go? So when you call up that drink in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills. You know the one, Dr. Everything Will Be Alright. It's just like, <laughs> yes, yes, let's start a movie this way. <laughs> Fucking perfect. We are being welcomed into the Church of Prince, and that's where we're going to spend the next two hours. Oh, God. Uh, so we... And it's... it. Sorry, go on. It's it's really unusual with the songs too because normally when you when you get a movie like this and you get songs happening, uh, they'll cut away and they'll show like montages or events happening in parallel or you know maybe they'll cut to the future and have the song keep on playing in the background while they do something like make out or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But most of the songs in this are performed on stage and you just see them perform. Yeah, it's not like some sort of um, walk hard style movie where it's like and now we see the montage as his uh, band signs the contract and makes their way up the charts and that sort of thing very much like what we covered in Josie and the Pussycats you know this avoids so much of that yeah uh, because this movie's like we have Prince and Trump. the Revolution <laughs> they are the best part of our movie Every time we just film them performing, it's going to be the best part of the movie. From what I understand, normally what you do with, with um, musical acts and films is that you, know, you, you have the music, you play it, and then the people on stage just kind of mime along to the section mm -hmm. that you're shooting right now, right? Because 
you know, depending upon how you set up the cameras and whatnot, you'll shoot it in sections. What they did here instead was Prince of the Revolution performed every single song. Oh my God, that's exhausting. But also incredible because I was watching it last night uh, like, in the last section and I was like, wait, he's so good at this. I can't believe he's lip syncing. He's not. He's performing. He's that good. Uh, so what we learn about all of these three different people groups Kin the Revolution perform at a band called uh, First Avenue in Minneapolis, which is a real club, and they actually shot all of the stuff in the club right there. Um, it is apparently famous in Minneapolis. Uh, he uh, has sort of a steady gig, but is not super successful. Uh, we also see Morris Day in the time. Morris Day is very rich. He has a friend slash bodyguard slash chauffeur who he can order around. Uh, and it, it's uh, a Le Mans of sorts, yeah. right? Uh, there, there's a vibe that these two are giving off. Yeah, these guys uh, they give off a sort of like. Um, they're still I found it interesting because especially because this is a real band it never feels like they are painted to be the worst band or the sellouts or anything like that like they're doing more no. coordinated stuff on stage but I'm like this song is still great it's not Prince but it's really good and these guys are putting on a hell of a show Yeah, I would expect it to be like in La La Land where they're like look at John Legend's sellout band with their lights and dancing but they're really not. I've never seen La La Land. I so. love Damien Giselle's movies. Uh, La La Land, I think it's a bad rap, but I think it's very good. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll check it out. Who knows? Who knows what the future may or may not hold. But yeah, Prince is uh, real good. This band is also real good. It feels like Morris Day is... It's funny because Prince was such a great showman and entertainer, if you will. An entertainer performing content. Um, you know, he sings, he dances, he writes, whatever. Uh, but Morris Day, it feels like in this movie, is much more consciously putting on a show rather than just letting the music flow through him, as it's suggested is happening to Kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, we see somebody new arriving at the club. This is Apollonia. She uh, she takes a <laughs> a cab that would be cab ride that would be expensive even nowadays. I have no idea how far thirty seven dollars in a cab <laughs> would have gotten you in nineteen eighty four. I presume she came from like New Jersey, uh, but she has to far stay. Away. Yeah, she has to stay in a fly-by-night daily rate motel and she is desperate to go to the first avenue and be a singer just like the stars she sees up there one day she'll make it big just you see kill all see uh, we meet the members of the revolution who are the real members of the revolution. If you go through the music videos like I do, you're going to be like, oh, there he is again. There she is again. 
Yeah, uh, I do know Wendy and Lisa because they went off and had their own independent career outside of Prince. Oh, good for them. Um, yeah, yeah. They they were never huge hits. Unfortunately, the movie did you know sort of foreshadow that of like, oh, if they go themselves, they'll never be as big as him. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was true. They were never as big as him. But there was a great episode of um, fuck. Go fact yourself. The, mm. the podcast where uh, one of the uh, contestants, their chosen category, was Prince, and they had Wendy and Lisa on as the experts, Ooh. and they told some wild fucking stories about <laughs> just like what it, not nothing that was like oh my god, but more along the lines of like, you know, he he was just constantly thinking about music. That was his thing, right? Yeah, it's one of those things when you're a person like that, like, it's all coming out of you all the time. Even if you wanted to, I don't think you could shut it off. Yeah, like, it's just, for some people, once you find your your raisin detra, <laughs> you, you, you just kind of go, all right, if this is what the universe has for me. I'm going to be... Ed- I mean, fuck it. He was Prince, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we find out from the uh, club manager that there are only three spots to perform. And he has... He's going to have four bands soon because there is uh, The Time, The Revolution. There is a third band which we see performing. But Morris Day is also forming a girl group. And the kid is kind of temperamental. He's kind of an asshole. He shows up late for rehearsal. He doesn't come up. (laughs) (laughs) And the big thing... Kind of? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's the thing where you're like, it has to be Prince performing Purple Rain at the end of this movie because that's the only redemption you could have. This guy's such an asshole. He's such an ass. Like halfway through the movie, I I had to text you, and I I'll I'll do this if I see something ahead of Sarah. I'll mm-hmm. text her any warnings of potential content. So potential content warning for anybody listening. Yes. Uh, we will talk about domestic abuse and a suicide attempt. But boy, howdy, do, would you think that ah, Prince? He's definitely the hero of this movie. He'll do maybe a small wrong thing, but learn from his lesson. And then you get to a point where it's like, no, Prince, this is unimaginably horrible. Yeah, Prince loved women. He would treat them beautifully, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, because the anyway. the kid lives in his uh, in the basement of his house, and his mom and dad live upstairs, and his dad is constantly beating the shit out of his mom. Sometimes the kid goes in to yeah. stop it, and sometimes he just turns the music up and tries to prevent pretend that it is not happening because it is nonstop. Yeah, it's it's not good at all it's really horrible and again you really think that ah okay we're gonna see this sensitive side of prince come out later where he explains his family situation and what's happening and he's gonna he's gonna grow and move on from it 
Nope, not quite that. No! Uh, Wendy and Lisa, who you mentioned earlier, are constantly trying to get Kid to listen to their music. He'll, he'll sometimes, like, not listen, not take it at all. Sometimes he'll take the cassette tape and we find out that he doesn't listen to it. They're really eager to have him perform their music. And he just, like, completely shuts them down. No excuse. And they give the impression that basically they knew he was going to do this because he is so wrapped up in himself that he will not consider anybody else's music. He's a temperamental bitch. He is. Uh, but he sees Apollonia, who's very pretty. And what's this? Is it perhaps love blossoming in his heart? Who the fuck knows? This man is not nice. Uh, he's not nice, and he's not upfront about anything that he's potentially going through. You just see him kind of brood, mm. but musically. He musically broods, but you have no idea what the brooding might be over. It could be over any number of things happening at the moment. Uh, he and Apollonia go for a uh, ride on the back of his motorcycle uh, one time, and he says that if she really wants to make it big, she's going to have to bathe herself in the bathe herself in the water of Lake Minnetonka. They are by a lake at a time. She immediately jumps in the water, and then he says that's not Lake Minnetonka, which I could see coming from a mile away, but it was still very fun. <laughs> It's it's a it's a very funny line. Yeah, I did the same thing where I'm watching her strip down. And what I also very much appreciate is she does go topless in this scene. The camera does not linger on her nudity. Does not you know salaciously take it in. It just seems to be as matter of fact as how Prince is taking the scene, where he's just watching her strip down and he's like, I know exactly what you're gonna do. Oh, you did it. You jumped in the lake. Cool. That's not the lake. I was half expecting him to say, that's a raw sewage pipe or <laughs> <Yeah>. something. Because <but laughs> he does try to stop her right before she goes in. Yeah. Uh, um. uh, and then he rides off on his bike as she is soaking wet and freezing. <laughs> Eventually he comes back yeah. for her. Yeah. But yeah, this is the beginning of their relationship. Where they seem to care very deeply about each other, but it never feels like we, like we really see them get to know each other. Yeah, uh, I I don't know. Is this like the mystery of the eighties? Like, oh, he's a rebel. Oh, he lives outside of how society normally does stuff. And meanwhile, he's also going like, oh, she's a rebel. She doesn't. She's not like other girls. And. Yeah, she's not like other girls in a way that's not like she's not like other girls girls are. Yeah. That sentence got a bit away from me. <laughs> he feels very, very young in this movie. I don't know how old he was supposed to be, but he feels incredibly young and like he hasn't figured... It's not that he hasn't figured his shit out, because none of us have done that. He hasn't started to try to figure his shit out. He feels the age that, what's his name, from Strictly Ballroom is supposed to feel. Paul Mercurio, yes. Yes, he feels like he's like yes. 18, 19, 20 at the oldest. 
Yeah, exactly. And this movie pulls off that, oh, he is so young vibe, better than Strictly Ball. No offense to Strictly Ballroom. I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> but this movie did a far better job of, like, look at this young upstart kid. Uh, meanwhile, Morris is focused on Apollonia as well, and he says that he's going to help her with her music career, which she initially uh, turns down because she doesn't want to betray the kid. And uh, eventually he wins her over because he's like, the kid can barely keep his own job. Are you really sure that that's who you want? And then, of course, uh, Prince is awful to her and slaps her when she tells him this. Yeah. Yeah, this I did not see coming. Nope. At all. Um, the fact that... I, it is understandable. There are a lot of people who become victims of a cycle of abuse and then go on to perpetrate those same abuses upon other people because it's... It's a means of coping for some people. Like, their brain goes, you know, I didn't have power. I wish to have power. And I understand this is how it works. Uh, other people f un unfairly believe that it is a sign of affection to an extent, which is also wrong. Right? Uh, do not hit people unless they are consenting to be hit. E even me, as a pro wrestler... <laughs> Everything we do, we ran, we run by each other. There is not much that you do in a wrestling ring that comes as as a surprise. Yeah, but I feel this like was... for a movie that's otherwise pretty solid in its um, in its through line of you know this is the kid he's going through these struggles with his band and trying to figure out who he is and that sort of thing. The stuff with his parents and the cycle of abuse, it feels like they they didn't take it into account enough. Either have this be a main struggle that the character is going through um, and have some catharsis at the end, or say, hey, this is a really weighty subject. Maybe it shouldn't be the minor B-plot in our music movie. Yeah, I think this is something that would have been handled far more deftly in a more modern film. Mm -hmm. One hopes, one hopes, because we are at a place now where, like, jokes about domestic abuse don't fly anymore, right? I mean, you like, say that, we, but there's we, an awful crowd around that, not to bring it up again, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, who think this shit is hilarious but I I believe I, I I I want to think that those kind of people are a very vocal minority God I hope of so. a lot of people who they're 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 trying to be shocking mm -hmm. right because they're still in that mindset of you know, comedy should push the envelope and comedy should shock people and should hold a mirror up to society. And it's like, your mirror is doing nothing, right? You've drawn on it in Sharpie <laughs> and you wrote a terrible word at the top, right? That, <laughs> this is not a good thing you're doing. And yeah, it's... 
this scene sucks. Yeah. I'm really sorry, but this scene just fucking sucks. It comes out of almost nowhere. It suddenly happens, and then the movie just moves on from it. Yeah, that's a that's the thing. The stuff about and, abuse, it never feels like the movie finds a way out of it. The movie has a happy ending because it turns out that the kid is Prince and that he has the power to do Prince stuff. Um, but it never feels like whatever the fuck is happening on between his parents or between him and Apollonia is truly resolved or fixed or addressed. No, no. They just come to like a place where they basically he's like, I'm never going to hit you again. She's like, great. Happy ending. What? Yeah. What? No. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so because he is annoyed at Apollonia, the kid performs a little song at uh, First Avenue called Darling Nikki. The filthiest Prince song, I think a lot of people would call it. The filthiest Prince song. Holy shit. I mean, first off, great song. Oh, I love great song. song. I really do. Great song. Filthy fucking song. (laughs) Yeah, because he's looking straight at Apollonia first... in the crowd and being like, this girl oh likes God. to fuck. <laughs> it, one of the first lines is, I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating to a magazine. Yes. I'm sorry, what? I didn't know you could say the word masturbation right? in a film before, like, 1995. <laughs> Every generation thinks we've uh, invented sex, and it is with shock that we find out that we that the, these words existed before us. I, I mean, I just, I don't think I know too many movies that not not just masturbation, women's yeah. masturbation. Yeah, that's the big thing because that's the shit that. Uh, that gets you not even the hard R. Like, you can make an American pie, but you cannot even suggest that women masturbate. Ugh. Just wild as fuck. Uh, because the kid it. is an I asshole. Uh, he's an asshole performing a great song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, of course... This makes everything worse. The revolution's job is even more at risk. And Apollonia and her group, the Apollonia Six, or just Apollonia Six, successfully debut. There only seems to be three of them. Is this right? Three of them. Yeah. Yeah. From what I could tell, there's only three in Apollonia Six. This is not Fox Force Five. Yeah, uh, this is um, uh, Leonard Part Six all over again. Yeah, yeah. The timely reference of Leonard Part Six. <laughs> Listen, I take him where I can get him. I can't say History of the World Part One anymore. No, because now there's a Part Two. F- finally, the one Mel Brooks joke that I could always fall upon, which was Mel Brooks likes to joke that there will be a sequel to this film, and there will never be a sequel to this film. Oh no, a lie. <laughs> Mel Brooks lied to me. Uh, Apollonia and Morris are celebrating after 
the uh, Apollonia 6 performance. Uh, they are, they seem to be both falling over themselves drunk and two people in a relationship having a good time together, which maybe it's just because of drama, but I'm like, I have not seen this really very often in a movie before. These two, pe these two people are really drunk together and they're having a good time and there's no sense of danger, it felt like. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... And then Prince shows up and, and everything changes. Yeah, he rides in on his motorcycle like it's the, the ballet at the end of center stage. And he almost runs Morris Day over and he grabs Apollonia and says, get on the back. And then he drives her off to this little place only he knows about. That's right. It's under a bridge. And uh, he's an <laughs> asshole to her again. Uh Nothing says romance quite like under a bridge. Yeah. It's a it's a regular cat. In Minneapolis. Set. God. So of course he returns home in the lowest part of our hero's journey, only to discover that his parents have clearly had a fight. There's broken stuff all over the house. He goes down into the basement. Oh yeah, we'd seen his uh father once before playing um is it piano or organ down there? And he, he'd never known... I, I believe it's piano. Yeah. He'd never known because, that his father was uh, musical before. Now, the, the wild thing about this is when the father is playing piano, it's not the father. It's Prince playing the piano. Oh, my God. That they've just dubbed over him. Prince could not help but just be everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> the interesting part is that Prince, um, Prince's own father was very musical. Prince Rogers was one of his like stage personas, uh, and that's how he got the name for his son. Um, and he co-wrote a lot of his a lot of music with his son, so it's it's very much taking like this father-son musical uh, relationship that they had and putting it in a new light because uh, the kid had never known that his father was musical. And his father says that he never writes any of it down because he doesn't have to, unlike the kid. However, this time when he comes down into the basement, he sees something, he screams, and then we hear a gunshot. We find out... This this was confusing to me. I didn't know where the mom was. I thought that maybe he'd killed the mom for a while. Um, but no, his father has shot himself, and the mom is nowhere to be found. Yeah, so this is this is the aforementioned suicide attempt. Originally in the script, he was going to die in this scene. Again, I I get it, but the the mom and dad are drawn so thinly. We get no time with them other than seeing Prince breaking up their fights basically. I was like I really wish there had been more there, but at the same time I'm like the the dialogue and the characterization is not the most exciting part of this movie. It's the music. This is just supposed to get us to more of the music. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't... You wouldn't know that it's mom and dad unless Prince said mom and dad. That is how little is given to them. They could just be very angry roommates. <laughs> yes. Wow, he, he has a real asshole landlord. Every once in a while he has to go up there and break up their fights. Yeah, God. Ooh. Uh, 
so the kid is so angry at this point that he starts smashing apart the uh, the basement. This was one of the things where I was like, oh, this guy is so, so young. Mm-hmm. This, the, the way he freaks out in this scene, this is, okay, all right. Have you ever seen Boogie Nights? I have not seen Boogie Nights. I know that I should. I love Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. Eh. I, I'm not a Paul Thomas Anderson person. I've seen Boogie Nights. Um, unintentionally, Boogie Nights has one of my favorite funny scenes in the world. And it's a scene where uh, whoever's playing uh, Marky Mark's mom is just going through his room, ripping down posters. And you're watching Marky Mark just like with the saddest, Mom, don't, don't turn on my posters, Bob. They're my stuff. And you don't know what's inside me. It's, and I laugh and laugh <laughs> and laugh because I think it's fucking hilarious watching grown man Mark Wahlberg cry about how much his posters mean to him oh. and how he's he's got good... S- no, no. Uh, if, if it was a real human being... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this would be a very sad scene, but every time I watch it, I'm just brought to, like, because it's got his Boston accent oh, yeah. pushing <laughs> through tears <laughs> in, and a woman running around, tearing down posters, screaming at him, going like, no, you're, you're lame. <laughs> you're, you're so lame. And all these things okay, are stupid. Okay, this sounds no, really camp. I see why you like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think it's one of the funniest scenes. Prince is pulling what that scene should have been off. Yeah, there's... The way he's freaking out feels like a petulant child who, at the same time, has now been dealt one of the biggest upsets in his life. His father has just tried to kill himself. So naturally, he needs to vent. And this whole scene feels real good. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, we... Have... No, Mom! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... I, I have the feeling that on set they were watching Prince just, like, attack a bike wheel that was up on the wall and like, is this gonna work? But it really, wor- it really, really works in the movie. It really works. It does work. Uh, he starts to listen to Wendy and Lisa's, uh, cassette again, which we we've heard like snatches of throughout the movie and me uh, an idiot every time he played it i would be like huh that kind of sounds like purple rain well it can't be because it's by wendy and lisa i must be dumb <laughs> sarah yeah sarah sarah well all right here's the thing to be absolutely fair the movie boogie nights does not feature the song boogie nights in it <laughs> So I can understand why you might go through Purple Rain going, oh, that sounds like Purple Rain, but there's no way they'll play that in this movie (laughs) because Boogie Nights refused to do it 12 years later or something. It wasn't that I thought it was going to refuse to do it. It's that I I was surprised that the movie, um, and I guess this is part of the, the arc of the character, I was surprised that the movie would go, he he is not, um, a monomyth. He will take. He will take from other people. He will work with other people. That this is not purple rain sprung out of uh, Prince's forehead. It was. It was born in the sea mm. mist. 
like Trish. Trish? <laughs> you'll you'll understand that in the future. Okay. Honey. <laughs> when I'm older. <laughs> When you're, when you're older, sweetie bumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> so we are back at First Avenue again. It feels like something's going to change. The kid is with the revolution in the, uh, in the dressing room, and there's this tension in the air. It's just getting tighter and tighter. It feels like the kid is about to explode. And Morris Day comes by again this is why i'm surprised he's playing himself because he's like hey how's the family everybody in this movie is such assholes it's but there is a lot of these assholes are delightful kind mm -hmm. of assholes where you're like yeah yeah i'm in, i'm enjoying what's happening here this this is yeah great. morris day and his band and his uh, his bodyguard slash uh, very good friend slash gal pal, who sometimes performs with them, they feel like they're like Animaniacs villains. I I really like this style of villain. I I don't know why we don't do this more. In that he's not a capital V villain. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything bad. Like you. You kind of expect that, oh, Morris Day is going to, like, he's going to betray Apollonia. He's going to drug her or try to get her hooked on something or tank her career or any number of things. No, he's just a rival. Yeah, like, he's an asshole, but he doesn't... That's like, <laughs> he, he says some that's it. really horrendous <laughs> shit. But yeah, he doesn't go out there and, like, slash his tires or anything. He, he is not... He is... No, there's... You could argue that the kid is a much worse person. Oh, he's a much worse person. He is. The way he treats his band. Oh, yeah. Morris Day would never, would never talk to Wendy and Lisa that way. So the revolution comes up on stage. It's very quiet. All of the energy of the place from the previous act is sucked out of the room. It's just a bunch of white people staring at Prince as he stands doing nothing at the microphone. It's Go, Prince, give us nothing. That's that's one of the things I found really weird about this movie was that the audience in the nightclubs, mostly white people. Yeah, I mean it's it's Minneapolis, right? That's pretty white, I guess. Yeah, but it's just But for to have a all movie the leads be so black and then Yeah, everyone yeah. surrounding them be white. Yeah, it's I'm just saying, not that it's a horrible thing or mm -hmm. ooh, weirdly cast or whatever, but it's just I mean, one of those things of like, I honestly would not have expected this movie, a movie that's so, you know, that all the main characters are black, mm -hmm. to just be like, and here's a whole bunch of white people watching, <laughs> watching these amazing talents yeah. and enjoying their amazing talents. Uh, but Prince stamps up to the microphone and he says that he has a song to dedicate to his father. And they start to play motherfucking Purple Rain. Do, do, do we so, need to describe this? Can we describe this? So, let, let me ask you this. Before this film, 
have you had you heard the song Purple Rain? I'd heard it before. It was not one of my favorite Prince songs. I um, I would say like before this, probably when Doves Cry is my favorite, which is in this movie. We barely mention it because it's just over a montage. Um, yeah, that's one of the few songs that is montaged. Yeah, it just feels like a music video in the middle of the movie. Um, but once I saw it in this context, I was like, no, this... And, and like, I like the, the guitar at the end and everything, but it was never my go-to Prince. This, no, this is this is so much better. Like, top of the charts. Nothing this is can top so yeah. much better. I, I had a s- similar kind of thing. Like, I'd heard Purple Rain before, but I was like, eh, this is, this is an okay song. Watching it in the context of the film, I was like, oh, no. F- this is a top-tier song. It is so beautifully done. The movie has earned its emotional payoff in this song. Because, as well, the the whole night is the, the four bands competing to see who gets the spots at the club. Mm-hmm. The other bands have done high energy numbers, and Prince comes out and does Purple Rain and brings the house down. That's the thing. Um, I feel like a lot of the time, the problem when you're creating uh, media about media, whether it's like a movie about movies or a movie about music or whatever, um, you have to then create that music, is the problem. And if you're like Adam Schlesinger and you're like, oh, this is what I do. I create fake songs all the time and I'm the greatest in the world who ever done it. That's good. But most movies don't have an Adam Schlesinger or a Prince creating their music for it. Mm-hmm. And that could be the tough part. Cause sometimes you're like, I don't know whether this movie wants me to think this song is good or bad. I don't know whether it's telling me to make fun of it mm-hmm. or whether it's like, solidly middle of the road not inventing anything new that sort of thing this movie does not have that problem no absolutely not it Um, is a slow song mm -hmm. it is a sad song and when it hits that fever pitch at the end that build up because it, it does just take a little while to get it going. Once you get into that first round of Purple Rain, you're like, oh. Oh, I get this. It cuts Ooh. to Apollonia crying in the crowd, and it doesn't feel unearned. No. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. If you guys take nothing away from this episode, just look up the clip of that performance in the movie it's better if you've seen the movie before and you know everything that led up to it but for for every critique that we are giving this movie it builds to purple rain and i don't know like how do you how do you do something better than that like unless you are creating the movie amadeus or something like how how do you do better than that It's such an incredibly fine needle to thread that he is he is the rebel, he's a loner, it's a bit of a love story, he's done some pretty terrible things, and yet 
when he performs, he is such a charismatic, top-tier entertainer that you just go like, well, fuck me. This is amazing. Yes. And this is where it's, it feels like the movie has earned its its about face. It's, oh, I hate everyone and everybody hates me and nobody understands my art because he immediately runs away because the crowd is so overwhelmed. And he runs away and down through the basement of everything that we've seen before and gets on his bike. And it's only once he bursts through the fire door at the back and you hear the, the crowd again. He can finally hear the crowd because the crowd is still going nuts. Oh, it's such a moment. He just slumps over his bike and he yeah. realizes, no, he was finally and like honest and revealed his feelings and they got it and they loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because earlier in the film, he was given the critique by the manager of the club. It's like, you make great music, but nobody understands it but you. And this song, people finally get it because he bears his goddamn soul. And so much so, like, I, as I read it, was his emotions are so high after doing Purple Rain. Like, he doesn't even know how the crowd reacted. Mm -hmm. He's, like, as he's running through there because everything's so pent up inside of him, he doesn't know that they're reacting because he doesn't even know they're there at that point. He's performing his heart and soul out. And it comes across. It, it is spectacular acting. Yeah, it's it's the best acting he does in the entire thing. Maybe because it's so true to him and, you know, his performance, his uh, experience as getting lost on stage. It also feels like one of those great performances where mm -hmm. if you're lucky enough to see one in real life... There's this moment after the show ends where everybody has to let their breath out and go like, oh, yeah, I'm in the real world again. I need to clap. <laughs> I forgot about that while I was in this. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's beautiful. It, it really is a tremendous feat of filmmaking of just, oh, yeah, all this shitty stuff has happened, but we're going to end this. We're going to bring out Purple Rain and you will root for the hero once more. Now, this is not the end of the movie. I thought it was going to basically have him come back and freeze frame no. the end. Uh, he went on to become Prince. No. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, but no, the rest of the movie is basically just the encores of that presentation. It's great. Yeah, he, he performs uh, I Would Die For You, which as you were saying before, involves a dance number in it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna send you a gif. Okay. This is a famous memed gif that I had seen for years and years and years, and I thought, boy, howdy, is that silly? I, why is this guy doing that? Right? You'll get the context as soon as you see this. Okay. And it wasn't until I saw how Prince dances in this song that I went... Oh, I get this gift now. I understand why this guy is doing it. I had to go and reach for my phone. Um, yeah, reach yeah, for that the, phone. The thing is, it's tremendous because at the end of... Once he comes back on stage... Oh, here we go. 
Yes, yes, this there is a bodybuilder doing prince's dance. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's a pro bodybuilder. I can't remember who it was. Um, it might be Flex Wheeler. But he is doing the quick stutter step and body rubbing that Prince does during I Would Die For You. And initially when I saw this gif, I was like, this is fucking weird. Why is this guy doing it? But now that I have context for him, I'm like, oh, I totally get why he's doing it. And he's probably doing a posing routine to I Would Die For You, which is why he's doing it. It's so funny too, because so once he comes cooler. back on stage, I think the as much as I critique the arc of this movie and the characterization, it's very clear once he comes back, like the central conflict is done. He has become who he was always meant to be, what he was holding back this whole time. And it doesn't feel... Uh, I mean, there's a very thin line between the kid and Prince, but in these last performances, that's mm -hmm. Prince on the stage. That is not the kid. Yeah. He's just so good. Oh, but yeah, they perform I Would Die For You and Baby I'm a Star. And then that's where the movie ends. We get a few shots of him with his parents in the hospital. We see that he's cleaning up the basement and Apollonia is there. They're back together. Uh, but the real, the, the real star of the movie is the music and these performances. It feels like it turns into kind of a concert film mm -hmm. at the very end. It's it's so much fun. I mean, the, the movie, you could just make it a concert film. Yeah. You, you could cut out all of the plot, and it would be a tremendous concert film that would have a couple things happen in it where you go like, why, why, are, they, why are they showing me this? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Fine. All right. Performances are so good. <laughs> just, God, there's a reason he was one of the best. Yeah, I am so... There's there's a moment every once in a while where you realize that there's this... There's so much art around us that you'll never be able to experience at all. But every once in a while when you go like, Oh, you know, Prince, I think we were just born like a little too late. He wasn't as big in the 90s as he was in the 80s. Um, and we were both like very teen bop kind of kids. Uh, but... Mm -hmm. To discover Prince now and go, we have Prince's entire catalog to get to go through. We are so fortunate. Well, it's it's not just that. Apparently, at the time of his death, mm -hmm. from what I understand is Prince was constantly just recording songs, making songs, making notes, jotting down beats, recording the odd thing here and there. He has so much like back catalog music that hasn't been released that they could release a new album of his for 50 years every year so this is one of the things that i saw last night when i was going through his music videos um because they have so much of his music and because he you know he was very rich he had a recording studio in his house and everything like that um and he videoed a lot of his recording sessions so things like um 
Prince never released a music video for Nothing Compares to You, but if you want to listen to his version, they've taken one of the archive recordings and they've put it together with various clips of him performing the song with the revolution in his home studio. So, you know, the, the video quality isn't incredible, but you can go and watch this. You can watch uh, his performance of uh, Manic Monday. Same thing. Like, they have... I, I was shocked at how much of this archival footage they've made available to the public. Just brilliant. Yeah. And, um, oh, to, to end it, you know about the episode of New Girl, right, with Prince? <laughs> yes, and who he uh, vetoed in the episode. I think I have oh, to go no, back and watch this episode. Oh no, I know nothing about that. All I know, all I know about this episode, because I I watched like the first season of New Girl and I was like, eh, it's fine, and then I dropped off. Mm -hmm. um, what I know about this episode is that it's so the episode is about the gang going to Prince's house for a house party, and now apparently Prince created a house party playlist of songs that he thinks this is the perfect music you play at a house party. <gasps> you put it on in the background. It'll keep everyone entertained, right? Mm -hmm. it, there's a couple favorites in there so people can enjoy things, but there's also just songs that connote the vibe of the house party. You can find this list on Spotify. It is, Ooh. I think, Prince's house party mix, right? And it's not his music either. It's just music that he thinks is great for a house party. And in this episode, you hear every single one of those songs in the backgrounds of the entire episode. Oh. Because it does take place at his house. And somehow they were able to get the rights, I guess, with having Prince. They were able to pull those strings and just be like, yeah, we're going to show every single one of these songs in this episode. From what I understand, he asked to be on the show because he was a fan of it. Um, they did not initially reach out to him. Great. Um, and that uh, Kim Kardashian was also going to be in this episode. Mm -hmm. And when Prince heard that, he said, no, I won't do it if she's there. He famously hated the Kardashians. Great. So they were like, goodbye, Kim oh. Kardashian. <laughs> we're going to select Prince instead. <laughs> We we have two choices for this episode. Legendary singer, songwriter, music genius man, Prince. Or famous person, Kim Kardashian. Yeah, you can see a lot of shows would not have gone with Prince, for better or for worse. It's true. Um, but yeah, if you if you watch that or only watch the clip where uh, the characters meet Prince and he realizes that everyone who meets him has <laughs> to take a second to freak out and scream before they can interact normally. <laughs> yeah, that part I have seen. Um, so, Sarah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before? No, we get no, to I was judgment? just about to uh, to take us to the runway myself. Okay, well, Sarah, is Purple Rain, whether we talk of the album, the film, 
kind of one of the same. Is it camp? No. And the reason why is because of the quality of the music. I've said this before multiple times, but um, you can't be camp when it's this sincere and this good. If you cut all the music out of this movie, this would not be a good movie. Uh, the three leads are not actors. It's very clear that they are not actors. It's not the strongest script in the world. Um, but I don't think camp makes you feel the way that this movie does. How about you? I, I'm going to go in the opposite mm. direction, only for the film. The, the, the soundtrack itself is genius. Okay. It's, it's almost bangers wall to wall. Not a big fan of um, the beautiful ones in Computer Blue. Yeah, Computer Blue Just, is They don't hit me quite the same way. Yeah, yeah. But Darling Nikki, I Would Die For You, uh, Take Me With You. I love Take Me With You. But the soundtrack is bloody brilliant. The movie, I will say, is camp. Because it's done something that I don't think we've actually properly covered on the podcast before. It's melodrama. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I love melodrama Th this... when it's done well. I don't think it's done well here, but properly done. I love it. This, yeah, this movie is melodramatic as hell right mm -hmm. it's a kid and he he wants to break out into the big world but oh no he's got family problems and oh no he's got a rival and oh no this new girl is in town and oh how does he balance all of these things and oh no what if all of it culminated at the same time and oh he won he did it everything's fixed the drama is no longer dramatic i think this movie just being so melodramatic, it it skews it into camp, right? Yeah, you know, I can see that. That's, that's where I think the camp comes in. I love the fashion as well. I think that everybody, like his, his keyboardist is dressed up in scrubs <laughs> with a surgical mask for some reason. No idea why, but he's cool as fuck, right? Uh, Morris Day looks phenomenal, dresses sharp as fuck. Yeah, he's dressed like um and it's just like Harlem Renaissance style. Like it a, looks incredible. Yeah, like a zoot suit yeah. kind of thing going on. But yeah, I I will say that the film is camp in the most melodramatic kind of way. It's so overly self-serious. Absolutely. I think this has to be one of the strongest recommendations we could possibly have coming out of an episode. Even if it's just the soundtrack that you listen to. But I feel like the soundtrack, you would lose the punch of what it what its context is. Because, like we said, with Purple Rain, when we got to that moment, it was like, oh no, this song fucking rules. This movie made this song great. Yeah, when I was watching performances, we were talking a little bit before the uh, the show started. Uh, I was watching the Super Bowl performance and he performs Purple Rain and I was like, oh my god, there it is again. Oh, I never had that connection to this song before. <laughs> so thank you I for joining that. us. A lot of, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, a lot of songs on my Spotify playlist 
they'll be random. Like I will not have any songs by that artist anywhere else, but it's because I saw it in a movie or a TV show and the scene it was in just struck a chord with me. And I'm like, no, this, this song's fucking great. I'm like that with Pocket Full of Sunshine. I hated that song until I saw it in Easy A, and now it makes me think of Easy A, so I love it. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us today on our exploration of Purple Rain. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice, leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes, and next week we will be discussing Victor Victor Frankenstein. Have you seen this? Victor Frankenstein. We're we're doing Victor Frankenstein. (laughs) Have I seen? I I have seen it once, Mm -hmm. but I think I watched it like during the day on a lazy Sunday so I didn't pay super close attention to it I remember Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy having great chemistry oh yes but I kind of just brushed it off as like a eh that's a middle of the road film yeah it's fine um, I want to get it out of the way. We are going to discuss this next week, but this movie is written by Max Landis, who is a notorious piece of mm-hmm. shit. Uh, we have condemned him previously on the show, but our selecting this movie does not mean that we condone any of his actions. Um, unfortunately, he has written two movies that I really deeply love, and this is one of them. Yeah, it's it's a problem with people who are pieces of shit. Every once in a while, they do something great, and you go, Ah, oh, fuck. If only you weren't a giant piece of shit, too. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite movies. Like, I've tried to disavow that movie, and I, I can't. I just try to separate the art from the artist as much as I can. <laughs> yeah, it's it's real hard to do it with, with that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm sure we'll have more to discuss on that next week. Uh, but in the meantime, oh, look at this segue. <laughs> in the meantime, you, our listeners, our campers, can continue the discussion on our Twitter and our Instagram. I am at Hrys Indigo, R-H-Y-S, spelled the Welsh way. And I am at Sour Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. Bye! Is it camp? Is Is it it camp? camp? Nice.